You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry, where he revealed how he's now taking a new direction in his trend-following journey that actually may make him less of a classical CTA in terms of delivering non-correlated returns to equities, so you don't want to miss that episode. Also, I'd like to encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Alan had a great conversation with Bilal Hafiz on all things global macro, an episode that contains some non-consensus forecast uh, for sure, and I think Alan and I will touch on this a little bit later in our conversation today, uh, but do go and listen to the full episode when you have a moment. As you know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you to become the best investor that you can be. We want to be provocative without being polarizing, and we want to challenge consensus narratives and to advocate how you can think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. Alan, it's um, always great to uh, see you. Um, how are things? How are things in Dublin today? Very good. Yeah, good to see you too. Um, we're recording on Friday. It's uh, winding down for the weekend uh, soon. So um, yeah, looking forward to, to our conversation today. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, maybe a little bit um, more loose, if you can put it that way, um, because a lot of things are happening today, uh, not least. Um, and since we are recording uh, on a Friday, as you said, the unemployment numbers have just been released. And, uh, and they are a little bit surprising, I have to say. A strong reading of 528,000 non-farm payroll an upward revision to uh, last month's numbers and an unemployment rate at 3.5%. So kind of hard to say if today is going to be a very much different from the rest of this week where it's been pretty mixed uh, in terms of uh, trend-following performance. Um, but it has been a busy week for Fed officials. They've been out talking about and communicating that they don't plan to stop the rate hikes anytime soon. And uh, the market seems to have been maybe getting a little bit ahead of themselves in the last couple of weeks. So today's numbers might actually be more meaningful um, to set expectations. Um, and as we're speaking, actually, I noticed that the treasury yield curve inversion has deepened further. Um, I think it's some kind of um, you know low now, I think since year 2000. And, and that is, of course, because the market now prices in again uh, some bigger rate hikes. Uh, the two tens curve increased to minus uh, 42, uh, 0.42 uh, basis points. Actually, that's probably 42 and a half basis points. And that is, of course, um, that they are expecting now a greater chance of a 75 basis point rate hike next month. It's actually quite interesting to see how the market is almost expecting the Fed to pivot as soon as they see lower inflation number. Um, but let's not forget that back in the 1980s, as far as I recall, it took almost three years from the peak in inflation to the Fed starting to lower rates. Um, and to some investors, that may be quite disappointing if rates continue to rise for a while before the unemployment data and the inflation data warrants a Fed uh, that 
pivots, so to speak. And um, perhaps we will be a little bit wiser after the central bank gathering in Jackson Hole at the end of the month titled Reassessing Constraints on the Economy and Policy. But of course, they can't really say anything that will influence our rules-based approach. So, um, Alan, uh, what's been sort of, I wouldn't say keeping you awake since we last spoke, I hope not, other than your daughter, um, but uh, what, have, what have you been following in terms of economic and markets and, 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 and stuff like that since we last spoke? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think the markets are very much in a seesaw between as, you know, the growth concerns and the inflation concerns. And it's almost like week to week, uh, it's the, the, the focus shifts in terms of which dominates, you know, for, for you know, a number of months there, it was definitely inflation. And it felt like we reached kind of peak inflation hysteria, maybe mid-June, you know, after the May release. And, and at the time, it was I think the same time, you know, the, the 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 report came out about the research that Larry Summers had written saying that actually, you know, the Fed would have to tighten even more than they did in the 1970s and 80s to bring inflation down. And there was a real sense of real fear around inflation. Obviously, since then, we've had a, another high inflation print, but, but bonds have been recovering. And, you know, I think the market has shifted away from inflation concerns to growth concerns and, you know, paradoxically, or maybe surprisingly, that's been positive for equities, but it has coincided with, with trend corrections and reversals across a number of markets. And the other piece of the puzzle, I think, that is very important is, is oil, crude oil prices at the moment. You know, crude oil also peaked, uh, you know, mid-June around the same time as, as bonds topped out. And that makes sense because even though the Fed and the central banks look through to core inflation, they are saying that they are very sensitive to headline inflation at the moment because obviously headline inflation and what people are paying at the pumps very much influences uh, inflation expectations. So we're into a little bit of a virtuous cycle in the last few weeks of falling oil prices, which is obviously good from a headline inflation perspective and good you know, from a consumer spending perspective. So you could say, well, okay, that makes sense that bonds and equities have, have recovered. And it also maybe, you know, lessens arguably the need for, 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 for Fed rate hikes. Um, so I think that's an interesting one that I'm kind of keeping a closer eye on than usual oil prices. The interesting thing is like from all the commentators that I read and, and listen to and who, who follow the oil market, you know, the consensus very much still remains that the oil markets still remain very tight. So, so that, that there's ultimately this upside risk but at the moment people are trading the the recession fears as dominating but but that's not to say that uh, that couldn't snap back later on so a lot going on there the other thing i would mention um which i thought was very interesting was the bank of england yesterday um and you know it, i thought it was really quite remarkable i can't recall such a pessimistic uh, report from a central bank to be forecasting 15 months of recession and rate hikes and inflation peaking at 13%. Um, I think it's nearly fortunate from their perspective that it's August and people are on holidays because I think if this was uh, any other time, there, there would be a lot more focus on this because I really do think it's, it was such a bleak uh, report. Uh, and I think this is, um, you know, this is something that we're going to hear more and more about is, and which, you know, we touched on before, you know, this trade-off between unemployment and, and trying to get inflation back down is going to be back on the agenda. Powell got a little bit of kind of pushback at the press conference the last day, but not a whole amount, and he kind of sidestepped it. But I think it will come back as, you know, if you get inflation down maybe to 4%, 
will the central banks keep tightening to get it down to three or two in the face of uh, higher unemployment? I'm not sure about that. So I think the politics around this is going to be really interesting in the months ahead. Um, you know, and certainly if the Bank of England and the UK experience is, is going to be replicated around the world, it's, it's a pretty pessimistic outlook. It almost sounds, Alan, like you think it was a coincidence that they released all that bad news while people were on holiday. I'm not so sure about that. It seems very well orchestrated to me. If you have to deliver bad news, why don't why don't you do it while people are on the beach somewhere? For sure. Um, but but I agree, it is very interesting. And by the way, the 13% inflation rate that they were forecasting, that's not until October. Yeah. I mean, so... So they see a lot of inflation, at least in Euroland uh, or in Europe um, still. And, and, you know, when you look at some of the PPI uh, numbers uh, in, 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 in particular in Germany, of course, that we, we um, is very important to, to Europeans. Um, I mean, it's crazy numbers, like 35% uh, year on year. So, I mean, the whole thing is, is uh, I think the whole, everything lines up to a very interesting uh, fall. We obviously know that Joe Biden went to uh, to Saudi Arabia to get more oil, but uh, as some people have jokingly said in the uh, media, he probably spent more oil on taking Air Force One to Saudi Arabia than what he got from from OPEC. Um, so we'll see about that. The deficits in the uh, natural gas situation, where I now hear from several people, and and for those of you who listen in Germany, if I'm wrong here, uh, feel free to to let me know, but but where the authorities are now actively informing people and suggesting people don't take showers, just do a little bit of washing here and there and uh, and and it to save energy, and also teaching people how to heat certain things using, I guess, kind of bonfires outside if there's no gas uh, coming this winter. This is scary times. It doesn't feel like 2022 where we should not be in a situation like this in in the heart of Europe. So I think anything can really happen um, going forward. And I think that uh, these sort of long, short strategies, um, which we'll come to a little bit later because there's some articles that you brought along, um, I, I think they, they will be much better positioned than things that are just long only going into a, a winter like that. You mentioned oil. Oil is interesting. But I have to say, for me, it's not just oil. It's actually also food prices. I'm a little bit suspicious, I have to say, as to how these two sectors, which are the ones that the Fed openly admit that they don't control, but they're the ones that really sold off very conveniently, of course. I mean, we know about oil, and and it seems completely mad to me that the US is releasing so much of their strategic petroleum reserves during this period of time, but we know why they do it. It's politically driven, but I think they're down to just over 50% of their max, which seems crazy in a time where... The world is getting more and more uh, intense from a geopolitical point of view, not least what we're hearing today now after Pelosi left uh, Taiwan and and uh, further um, um, a further response, let's put it that, uh, from China, um, which uh, is certainly not easing the tension. So, yeah, I mean, uh, as we talked about before, I'm I think one of the things we as investors have lost is the imagination of what markets can do. Uh, but unfortunately, I fear that um, that's going to be we're going to be reminded of that um, in the coming year, uh, and in particular during the maybe the winter season when it comes to European uh, markets. But we'll see. Yeah. 
We'll I think in the case of the UK, the reason that they're forecasting that peak is is because the regulated fuel prices, uh, the next round of increases are due to kick in in, in that particular month. So, um, you know, it's very it's very much related to that. Um, but I just had a quick scan of the Bank of England report. I mean, they are, they're, they're I think their forecast is predicated on oil prices, uh, I think, uh, following the future prices and then flattening out after six months. So obviously there's, you know, upsides and downsides on, on both sides to, to, to that. So, you know, things could, you know, it, it just strikes me that if you went back to, where was it? I think it was maybe the end of last year. I remember um, Bailey said, oh, we actually think inflation might peak out at 5% in the UK. And that seemed to be a very high number at the time. Now we're up to thirteen percent. You just wonder, you know, ultimately where where it can go to. So, um, as you say, it, it's uh, you, you have to kind of, um, you know, um, not be anchored to, to what we've experienced in the past and uh, keep an open mind. I'm, yeah, exactly. And I'm also surprised to hear how many of uh, of these sort of expert economists that are out being very sure about how inflation is going to, you know. Many of them said it it peaked many months ago. It's obviously yeah. still hasn't peaked yet. So, um, so so as you rightly say, I mean, how high can it go? Who, who knows? So it will be uh, it will be interesting. The other thing about, I mean, again, going back to oil, we know it's very tight at the moment, but then we, we, you know there are certainly uh, discussions about um, will Europe start to use even more oil, maybe up to another eight hundred thousand barrels a day. Um, because they're shifting away from natural gas over the winter season. Um, we know that the strategic petroleum reserves will come off at some point. That's going to uh, remove about a million barrels a day in su- supply, um, which, by the way, has to be um, you know put back in place at some point. That's actually going to increase demand, you would think. And then you have China, of course. Uh, when are they coming fully back, and, and how much more oil will they be using per day once that happens? Um, so... So it is a little bit surprising to me that oil has sold off this much, um, even though I imagine that most long-term trend followers are still long uh, in oil, but um, but maybe not for that much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, in terms of a trend-following update for the week, um, actually, it looks to me like most most trend followers are pretty flat uh, after the first week. Well, obviously, Friday today with the unemployment number being what they were. That could actually be good news uh, if if interest rates go up a little bit uh, from here and maybe the dollar as well. Uh, who knows? But generally speaking, um, you know, trend followers lost money in July mainly from fixed income markets, but they've actually been the ones uh, helping out this week by by going a little bit lower again uh, with all the Fed speak about uh, them not being finished with uh, hiking rates. And then you had energies; they've been under a lot of pressure still this week. Um, and uh, obviously that is hurting still the long-sided positions uh, in, in, in many long-term trend-following models, I would imagine. Um, other sectors have been relatively quiet. Uh, maybe there were some profits in metals uh, to the short side, um, but the rest, I don't think there was much uh, really to uh, to talk about. And um, yeah, and when I had a quick glance at the, at the industry numbers, um, because they haven't really been updated as of Thursday night yet, um, but frankly, they were pretty flat. Not very interesting. So nothing has happened really in July so far. Um, I did notice that my own trend barometer had gone up from its incredibly low numbers at the end of July, um, around 14, I think, or 18. 
which really confirms that it was a negative month for trend followers in July, but now it's up to 27. It's still pretty weak. So we're not in that environment we were in the first six months where it was constantly above 45 and most of the time sort of 55 to to 65 range, which is a good um, area to be in um, from a trend following point of view. So... But Alan, you brought along some topics. Um, I had one article that kind of was related to it, so I think we'll we'll dive into all of that. Um, and um, but the first thing you wanted to to just touch on a little bit was uh, something I spoke briefly about with Jerry last week, which surprised me that he wanted to talk specifically about July performance. We because we don't, never really normally talk about performance. That was quite fun. It was quite interesting. Uh, we went through a few uh, things and obviously the difference uh, in terms of how you manage risk, how you manage your position size, all of that good stuff. Uh, so I'd love to hear what uh, what you uh, took away from from July um, and, and year to date. But before I do that, I, I had a question that I didn't mention to you before, but I'm, I'm sure you can answer it. Uh, Jerry and I also ended up discussing a little bit the whole disc- uh, the whole point about replication. So CTA replication, right? Can you can you go and buy uh, like a trend following uh, performance index uh, in in a cheap way? And and this is not meant specifically to any one um, product out there. You know there are a few products trying to do this. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, at your old shop, um, you might have something that I can't remember, but you may have have. Um, portfolios that at least try to deliver you could say uh, an industry like performance uh, even if you yeah. do it by investing in individual managers so i'm just curious kind of your initial um, thoughts on on replication um versus finding a, a few good managers to to invest with and and what you've over your career seen as the the, the pros and the cons uh, yeah. from from that approach yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I've been looking at it a little bit more in the last while. I, I was listening to your conversation with Jerry last week, so I looked at it a little bit more this week. And uh, I know you were talking particularly about the dynamic beta uh, mutual fund. So um, I think, like, I mean, I think it is. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on replication, so it is very interesting that that they can, uh, you know, achieve the um, the, the performance numbers. Uh, and, and replicate the strategies through, you know, sophisticated regression analysis. Um, what's interesting to me is I, I delved into look at the holdings of that mutual fund, and you, you know, they're, they're quite. Um, they're not trading that many markets. I think it's 14 markets or so, and and, and maybe six of them are fixed income markets. So I was a little bit surprised on that. Um, and but but that, that said, I mean the objective is to replicate the performance of the Stockgen CTA index. And I, I suppose if you think about it, the managers in the Stockgen CTA index, you know, I think it's 20 managers. It's large managers. It's a mix of trend and non-trend. They're you know the risk allocations will tend to be more heavily focused on the the, the major markets and the financial markets. So I think I could see a case for a while it might be easier to replicate that type of performance than, um, you know, a, a manager who's trading a lot of smaller commodity markets. And that type of manager might be more more difficult to, uh, to replicate. I think, you know, I know you made a comment, oh, you shouldn't be shouldn't shoot for average in performance last week. And I understand where you're coming from, I, I, I suppose. From taking the other perspective from, you know, having spoken and interacted with lots of clients over the years who've achieve maybe below average results from trying to pick single managers, I can understand why people might just say, well, I'd be happy with the 
industry type uh, return, like whatever the return is from managed futures or from trend following, and outsource that manager selection uh, either to a multi manager or a full fund of funds, or if you you know if, if you buy into it, the uh, replication method. So I, I'm not I'm not so you know I think from the perspective of an allocator. Achieving an average return could be could be just just fine. I can understand why that would be the case, and I think I think there is you know I think it's I think the the, the replication strategies are interesting. As I say, I'm surprised the, the the narrow range of contracts, but but looking at the performance, it has it has worked uh, you know well relative to the SOCGEN CTA. So I I think it's um you know it's something to to, to look into. I mean, time will you know I, you know the, the big risk is obviously. Uh, you know, uh, uh, of a sudden change in in the market trends that 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 um, that uh, trend followers respond to, and then the replication strategy is slow in responding to, and that that could be just a, a kind of a one off event that that could 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 skew the results um, and and the returns at some point in the future. You know, we're always saying, you know, we've only one. Um, um, one version of history to observe. So just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it can't happen. So that would be the one kind of concern from my perspective that that that, that I think with, with that strategy they look back sixty days to replicate the the returns and then the rebalance weekly. So in theory you could have like a change in trend. Like obviously the yen had a sharp reversal uh, recently. Now it's 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 kind of bounced. Uh, dollar yen has spent back in the last few days, but but something like that would be a little bit of a concern. But I, I, I overall, I, I'd say I have an open mind on it, and I could see some merit to it. But I could see how it might struggle um, to to replicate maybe the performance of certain individual managers. But how it might work at you know for 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 the broader industry, particularly for kind of high capacity strategies. Yeah, I mean, of course, there were some cheeky comments from my side in that conversation to spice it up a little bit to some extent. But also, uh, you know, I certainly stand by them. And I even stand by the thing about that nobody wants to be average, because when I look at all the work that investors do when they do their due diligence, I can assure you they're not doing it to find average. They're doing it to find the best trend follower they can find. Um, so, But I do agree with you. Many of them, and that's probably for internal political reasons, would be happy with just getting an industry-like performance because then that's easy to defend, right? But I don't think that's their aim. Their aim is to obviously do as, as well as they can. But let's not open that can of worms today. Um, we may do more about with this uh uh, in in a later episode for sure, and 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 maybe get some people in to to argue both sides of uh, of the story. You never know. Um, but let's dive into your thoughts on um, uh, July and 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 year to date. How you see it? I had some of my own comments because there were a Bloomberg piece out regarding you know some some big headlines that I'll come in. I'll I'll, I'll comment on that in a second. But I'll I'll let you. Um, Share your thoughts. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I know last week you were talking to Jerry, but you know, tough July, and uh, obviously we've seen reversals in July. Um, you know, as as I've been saying, the, the the market theme has kind of shifted from inflation to to, to growth, and we we saw uh, bonds recovering, we saw equities recovering, commodities generally down in the last few weeks, and the dollar had a mid mid month reversal in July. So I was kind of expecting quite a negative outcome for in terms of performance in July. And the SOCGEN trend index is, was down 4.4%. So I was surprised, to be honest, that, that it, I thought that was a pretty reasonable outcome considering that, you know, the, the, the index is up, you know, I think it's about 29% in the first six months of the year. So it just prompted me to have a, a little bit of a look in to try and um, just to, 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 to see was there any kind of interesting observations around that, particularly as well 
well because we're, we're obviously in the midst or we have been in the bits of, of a bear market. So there does feel like that this, this rebound feels like so, you know what we might have seen in the, in the summer of 2008. And then I want to look back to see where, where there's similar kind of recoveries during the kind of 2000 to 2002 period and, and how did they look like. And it's interesting when you look back, I would say some parallels with the past for, for sure. As I mentioned, you know, if you go back to 2008, uh, you, you might recall there was a rebound in the summer, July, August of 2008. Um, there was a pause, I guess, in the financial crisis before the worst of it was in October. And and in that period, you know, the equities bounced by about 10, 10% and the SOCGEN trend index was was down about 7 8% in, in that period. So a little bit more than what we've seen now. And if you go back to the 2000-2002 bear market, there were a couple of rebounds within that April, May uh, 2001, uh, the S&P bounced by about 14%. And the SOCGEN trend uh, w- w- was down, I think, about 8%. And then in, in November of that year, November of one was a really negative month for, for trend following. The SOCGEN trend was down 13.6%. There was a big wow. bond market reversal that month. So I was. Um, it felt like maybe, okay, that the, re- that, that the kind of give back this time has been a bit less, you know, certainly relative to that 2000-2002 period. Um, so I think a couple of possible explanations around that, sure. uh, maybe around the nature of the moves that we've seen, and it, you know it's possible that, I mean you'd, you'd you'd have a better visibility in terms of positioning, but it's felt like positioning had lightened up a bit on the particularly, you know, not huge exposure on the equity side and. Uh, you know, obviously, we've already had a bit of a down move in commodities before J- July. You know, the move started there prior to that. So maybe positioning wasn't that great. And at the same time, although we had a reversal in, in the dollar, it was more of a mid-month reversal. There, there might have been gains in the first half of the month, uh, on, on particularly on, on the dollar-yen side. Um, but I think the, the other point that, I, I, that, that, that got me thinking was, actually, you need to be very cautious when you're looking at something like the SOCGEN Trend Index, because... The composition of that index has changed over time as well. Of course. So if you go back to 2000, the volatility of the stock chain trend index in, I looked at it for the three years, 2000 to the end of 2002, is about 20%, whereas now it's about, you know, 11.5%, 12%. And, you know, one, you know, some of the managers are probably the same, but they, they used to be more volatile back then, you know, so we, it's well known some managers have kind of become less less volatile uh two maybe maybe there was more people more of the managers back then were were, were taking the 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 non-vol targeting approach you know as as jerry was talking about and um, that that might have been something that's come in over time um so i think that's something that you have to uh, to keep in mind that 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 compositional impacts can be important when you look at something like a a, a hedge fund index so Again, I went back and I, I adjusted for that. Um, so looking at how bad July was in terms of kind of standard deviation moves. So so adjusting um, based on kind of the tw- trailing 12-month volatility. And so, yeah, July was, was, was not particularly bad, like at 1.2 times the... Uh, uh, the monthly standard deviation, which is not 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 terribly bad, and actually, you know, then when I looked at it and I, and I looked at the kind of past episodes where where you've had tough performance uh, on on that kind of adjusted basis, the one that really stood out is February um, 2018. You know, that's a month we've talked about before, yeah. and and generally, I would say, kind of, I suppose my 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 conclusion was 
taking out that November 01, I mean, I suppose you can't take it out, but but that aside, like bear market rallies don't happen, don't seem to have been that terrible for, for trend followers, where you've tended to get worse periods for, for trend following performances when you get a correction within the bull market. And probably mm-hmm. because, you know, uh, you've, you tend to have low volatility, so higher exposures. And then when you get a reversal in that situation, you get a volatility expansion in a reversal. Whereas what we're probably seeing now, you know, we've already had the volatility expansion and then when the market rebounds, you know, uh, managers have already relatively muted positions, so it, 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 they don't suffer as much from from those types of reversals. So, yeah, I, I, if if I was to make a tentative conclusion from all of that, it was that that maybe the worst periods for for trend following will tend to be those reversals in a bull market as opposed to bear market um, uh, kind of uh, recoveries for for, for, for equities. Um, I, I had I, I did uh, when, uh, in the midst of doing that uh, a couple of other observations just on performance and correlations, which I thought were interesting. If you look at the correlation of performance this year for managed futures and trend following, it is interesting. Uh, I suppose we know this, but it's just interesting when you see it blatantly. Like managed futures and trend has been negatively correlated to both bonds and equities, and particularly negatively correlated to equities. The negative correlation to um, to, to equities is negative yeah, 0.3 year to date and about negative 0.1 over the last uh, kind of one year. Not, so nothing unusually, we know, we know it has that feature, but, but in relation to bonds over the last one year, it's negative um, 0.5 or so, which is quite, quite a negative correlation. So, um, and then obviously what that means from a portfolio construction perspective is not only have you had positive performance from trend and managed futures, but delivered with a negative uh, correlation to both bonds and equities. So, you know, perfect storm from a portfolio construction perspective in terms of volatility dampening and return generation. Um, so it is we, we, it is interesting. We have seen, uh, if you go back to t- 2006, that was the last time we saw a reasonably negative uh, correlation uh, between trend following and, and bonds. And of course, that was another Ted, uh, Fed tightening cycle. So as the Fed was tightening initially in that tightening cycle, bonds didn't really react. You know, Greenspan's uh, conundrum, you remember. Uh, but then in the latter stages, as policy got a bit tighter, bond yields did start to rise and, and managed futures was delivering positive performance from the commodity uh, rally. So you were seeing that negative correlation uh, as well. So I suppose it's interesting. We always talk about that ability for managed futures and trend following to have a positive correlation in an equity bull market and then a negative correlation in an equity bear market. But we're seeing this very much with bonds as well, positive correlation in in bond bull markets and negative correlation in bond uh, bear markets. Um, The final piece to all of this is obviously that the bond equity correlation has has obviously shifted in the last uh, year as well. And that's something that everybody had been talking about or a lot of people have been talking about and saying it was possible because you know i think historically maybe going back to from from you know a year ago back to the uh, mid 90s bonds and equities were were negatively correlated but prior to that were actually positively correlated and it comes back to you know what's the bigger uh, focus in markets is it growth or inflation and if it's growth uh, you'll tend to get that negative correlation but if it's if it's inflation you'll tend to get that positive uh, correlation and actually if you look at it more 
you know, high frequency measures, say 20 day correlation between bonds and equities, it is fluctuating between positive and negative. And I think that's reflecting the fact that the market is seesawing between its focus on is it is it more worried about inflation this week? Or is it more worried about growth? So it is quite interesting how we haven't seen that consistent uh, uh, correlation turn consistently positive that it is fluctuating a bit, but certainly uh, there is a shift underway there. So yeah, lots of uh, little uh, interesting bits, um, but yeah, key takeaway, obviously, small give back uh, and still a very, uh, you know, a, a fantastic year, you'd have to say, from a trend following perspective. Yeah, no, indeed. And and, and, and thank you for that, um, for sharing that. There's a lot of things to, to unpack, uh, and I certainly would like to spend just a little bit of time um, on that. Uh, I hope I remember some of your points, but so let me start in reverse. You talk about the uh, correlation. This is something I've been talking to our prospects and clients about for for quite a while now because one of the things we noticed was that if you go back as you rightly say if you go back more than 100 years what tends to happen is that when inflation uh, goes above three percent and it may not be driven by inflation it's just a very high strong correlation but when inflation goes above three percent the correlation tends to flip to uh, to positive between stocks and bonds um, so as you rightly say, if you go back about 100 years, because we used to have much more inflation than what we've had in the last 20 years, two-thirds of the time there's actually a positive correlation between stocks and bonds. But because we've experienced like a very consistently negative correlation most days between stocks and bonds for the last 20 years, I think a lot of people who frankly have not traded in an environment or invested in an environment where there was inflation, they probably felt that that was more normal than 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 not um but it's not true and th- this is also why i've been very concerned about how portfolios in general are positioned because i think that they are uh, expecting um a a correlation between bonds and equities which is not the norm but they it, but they think it's the norm so that's kind of one thing on that i think also you made some really good points about um the whole you know the pole performance uh, space and and why maybe we Maybe we see more givebacks when when we come in a, from a equity bull market uh, that has been lasting for a while, and then suddenly you get this big sell off and reversal. And we know they have been painful. There's been a few painful those uh, of those in the last uh, ten years or so. Um, but I also like your comments about the idea of um, the giveback this time around not having been uh, great. Not only because of the uh, the fact that we it's a bull market, uh, sorry, bear market rally. But there is this difference, without a doubt. I mean, there, and this is one of the things that, that I think Jerry and I kind of touched on last week. There is this difference between managers uh, like Jerry who wear the loose pants and don't adjust. Now, I still don't like the word vol targeting because I think that that's not necessarily what people are doing. I prefer dynamic position sizing. I think that's a more accurate uh, description of what we're trying to do. Um, and this is what, yeah, I mean, this is uh, no doubt about it. I mean, this is what Dunn Capital does. We uh, we don't have static positions. Um, and um, and so you're right. There is some of that. And and and, and actually, I think Jerry made that point last uh, week as well, that maybe one of the reasons why the SOCGEN CTA index isn't hurt so much is that a lot of the larger managers uses these techniques. Um, and that would also certainly have been different um, back in the uh, early 2000s, as you mentioned, where maybe um, returns uh, were more volatile than they are uh, today because of the fact that we've all evolved and, and we do you know new things, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this is also why I think that 
I mean, the risk management side of what we do, we always like to talk, well, I wouldn't say we do, but but many people like to focus on the returns. Um, but let's not forget that I think CTAs and trend followers, first and foremost, we are risk managers. That's the, that's the part we feel we have some level of control over. We don't control the returns. Um, we just have to take what, what the market gives us. But we really do have some input uh, in terms of uh, of the way we manage the risk. Um, and, and I think sometimes that is a little bit forgotten, that we are, in fact, pretty good at managing risk. Um, so uh, so that, that is an important uh, takeaway as well. You said so many other great things. Uh, I've completely forgotten them. Um, that's just how it is when you get older. Uh, but I did write down a few notes myself because there came out this Bloomberg article, which, of course, always happens when there is a quote-unquote... Uh, Usually a negative, uh, a negative uh, uh, month in in the CTA space. Something that these um, journalists uh, can get into, and not just the journalists, but actually, if if I'm, I'm being very frank here, I, I think some of these uh, um, investment banks like Nomura and J.P. Morgan, um, and and maybe there were some other ones who were ne- mentioned. They they kind of like to uh, to voice their opinions, um, but I think. And, and the reason why I, I want to say this is not necessarily just to criticize, right? But I find it concerning that some of these houses come out with statements that are, in my opinion, factually wrong. But it make it, but, but they make them sound like, oh, they're in the know. They know exactly what CTAs uh, are doing. Um, so let me read to you some of these headlines from an article in Bloomberg called Quants Exit 100 Billion of Inflation Bets in big market shifts. And here they quote, for example, uh, JP Morgan uh, and Nomura. Um, and um, and they say, um, fast money traders have just unwound about 100 billion of bearish stock and bond bets, helping the world's biggest markets to recover from the worst first half of uh, in history. I'm obviously very dramatic headline. I'm not so sure the CTAs helped any do anything uh, and I'm not sure that 100 billion is is very much um even though if that number was correct uh, compared to the total volume uh and 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 in in the in those markets then they, they go on with other things like in the past month so-called commodity trading advisors have offloaded big short positions uh, that were built around the idea of soaring inflation according to analysts conducted by both JP Morgan Chase and Nomura Holdings but we didn't build anything based on inflation. We we took positions on because prices moved down. You know, it has nothing to do really with inflation, frankly. And I know people will say, well, they moved down because of inflation. But still, it make it sound like we have some kind of, in our model, some kind of link to inflation, but that's not true. And then they go on to say, most of what has happened in recent weeks could be attributed to CTAs. JP Morgan strategist Nicholas... I can't pronounce his last name, said in an interview, CTAs always act as the amplification force. The same way they amplified moves on the way down, they're likely to amplify the moves on the way up. I mean, that's a lot of BS, frankly. What's that? I mean, they always, you know, amplify these uh, forces. I mean, again, CTAs tend to get in when the trends are very small. They're just started. This is when we get the breakouts. It's not in the middle of the trend. It's not at the end of the trend. That's probably the investment banks and their clients that are realizing they should have been in this trade, right? And vice versa. 
So I just think it's very um, unfortunate that we continue to get this kind of commentary. Uh, it's not very helpful. It's not very accurate. And then they go on to say, in the biggest reversal since the start of the pandemic, CTAs flipped from short to neutral position in both 10-year U.S. Treasuries and S&P futures. How do they know that? If I look at our positions, we haven't flipped anything in the U.S. 10-year notes and, and stuff like that. So it's just, anyways, I couldn't help um, wanting to say a little bit about this um, because I just think it's, it's, um, it's a lot of BS and it's not very helpful. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't seen it. You sent it on to me just uh, today. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing that stood out for me... Uh, okay, let's hear right it. At the end, well, nearly at the end, they say, one thing's for sure, trend-following strategies are getting harder to implement in the Wall Street whiplash after an unprecedented first half, which, as you say, it sounds very dramatic and, oh, oh my God, it sounds so difficult for trend-following, that, that strategy that's only up <laughs> 20% plus this year. So it's just, I, uh, it is interesting how even in, in a phenomenal year it can be spun to be a bit something that's, that has worked for six months but it almost certainly won't work again. I had that comment as well written down. I completely forgot about that. And I don't even know what they mean harder to implement. It is as easy to implement today as it was six months ago or a year ago. Nothing has changed. I mean, anyways, crazy stuff, uh, but good for us. Then we have something to talk about. But there was another article. There was actually quite a few articles that I really liked. So why don't we focus on that? It was an article that you, um, I think, pointed me to um, by Nick uh, Baltus. I think he's a Goldman Sachs uh, guy, if I don't... Um... That's right, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's talk about that. That, that I think, is actually <laughs> quite constructive. Interesting. I mean, I, I, I had just seen it uh, referenced on, on uh, LinkedIn. Okay, and, well, I'm um, happy to talk about it first. If yeah, you no, I, I mean, I read it. Okay. I, 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 mean, right. just, it, it, I mean, it's basically taking the opposite view and explaining um, why we've seen such good performance for, for trend following this year. And inflation is a big part of the story. And uh, Nick also goes on to talk about, you know, some of the reasons why we're seeing better performance now um, versus, you know, why it had been a tough in the 2010s, which is something we've talked about here um, a number of times before. Um, so, yeah, well, what, what was your takeaways? Well, yeah, no, exactly. So there's two key takeaways from me. So one is that he talks about, well, essentially what he's trying to say, uh, as I understand it, is, well, this time may be different. And there's a reason why um, you want to have your uh, you want to have an allocation to CTAs this time around, and it's not uh, it's not going to disappoint you the way it may have done in the 2010s, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he goes into that, and as you rightly say, lots of us have talked about the 2010s as this lost decade. Some people say it's a lost decade. Well, we we still did pretty well uh, on our side, so I wouldn't call it a lost decade. But I know the industry had a five year stint from 15 to end of 19 where there were no returns so so i acknowledge that and i that's fine um now what he does is actually confirm based on their research he kind of confirms what we've always been saying and that is that during that period of time first of all people can just look at the commodity uh, crb index and actually it was completely stuck in a small range for those four and a half five years that's a good way of visualizing why it may have been difficult. But what he goes on to say is that market across asset classes were less frequently in trendy mode. Completely agree. That's confirmed by my own trend barometer. So I completely agree with that. He also says that even if they were in a trendy mode, the average size of the moves were somewhat muted. Okay, completely agree with that. Which also means that a lot of the quote-unquote trend breakouts we got um, 
essentially, um, I would say, the. I think he calls it the trend breaks. I think what he means here is kind of reversals. Yes. Um, and, and that they were higher compared with historical standards. And I think he goes on to say, well, this was all due to the Fed put, meaning, as we've always talked about, the central banks were pretty much in control. They kept everything very stable. We didn't have any booms. We didn't have any busts. So everything was honky-dory. And in that kind of environment, if you don't have the commodities either, then it is tough for trend followers to make money, even though some of us actually did. But then he goes on and he concludes by saying, and I'm quoting now, that period is seemingly over. Single bank hawkishness of tone and action has replaced the Fed put as inflation has taken over for good, this times this time seems different. And I think that is a very upbeat assessment, and it's very much in line with my own view. Um, and as you may remember a few months ago, where we discussed, I call it my thesis, I'm sure other people have thought the same, but where essentially the end of the carry regime, as Kevin, our co-host Kevin Coldine uh, co-wrote, the end of the carry regime that lasted for these 20 years where everything was very uh, stable, peaceful, uh, not just in the markets, but in the world, um, and where the best thing you could do was to buy equities and bonds with leverage and you would be fine. But that regime seemed to have come to an end and we are now seeing maybe the beginning of a, a long-term shift in how markets are going to behave, um, how volatility uh, in some markets will be much higher than anyone would expect, and probably also, um, surprisingly, a little bit muted in things like equities at the moment, uh, frankly. But anyways, so I really like Nick's piece, um, I have to say, in the Financial Times. Um, and uh, and of course, his conclusions are very much aligned with, uh, with our views. And if people like Goldman Sachs can convince some more institutional investors to to see this, uh, as an opportunity for them to fully diversify or properly diversify their portfolios by including uh, trend-following strategies, then that is a very good thing um, because they may not be swayed by you and I, Alan, when we talk about it every week. Um, but if Goldman Sachs does, uh, who knows? Um, maybe we get an answer there. Absolutely. Um, and I, yeah, I fully agree with uh, everything that uh, Nick wrote in his article and his explanations. Um and uh, you know around why it was tough and why we're seeing a better environment now and i i think as you say it's it's not just the fed put i think that's part of it and it's not just the central banks it's it's and, and i think this is a good segue into some of the other pieces it's globalization that, isn't it? it it's all of this like that yeah. it's uh you know if you look at the the underlying fundamentals we there was less volatility in in those in the, in that decade, there was less volatility in GDP and in inflation. You know, we inflation was rarely strayed out of the probably between zero zero point five to one and a half percent range, and GDP growth was you know secular stagnation was the theme, and we had a decade where you had a hangover from the global financial crisis. You know, you had insufficient demand and excess supply, and policymakers were worried about deflation. Uh, now you've got excess demand and insufficient supply, and policymakers are worried about inflation. So, from a macro perspective, it's the mirror um, opposite. You know, or uh, you know, it's 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 the opposite uh, macro scenario. So, um, the Fed put as part of it the quantitative easing, the quantitative tightening. 
you know, I was looking at this uh, recently. If you, if you think of all of the ingredients that might be good for directional and, and macro trading and compare this take decade versus the last decade. So you've had, you know, you had low inflation back then. You've got high inflation and more variable inflation. You had low growth. Now you've got high and more uncertain growth. You had globalization. Now you have deglobalization. You have... You had commodity markets that were kind of flat to down for a decade. Now you've got commodity markets that were bursting higher, but now correcting. You've got divergences across the economic cycle, where back then everything went up and down at the same pace. You've got divergences in, in interest rates. You've got China, uh, Japan stuck at you know easing, the US tightening. Um, so you've got this cocktail of macro uh, factors that, that are way more favorable for generating volatility and directional moves in markets. Than, and can than we, we also add then. the... Energy crisis, energy well. crisis, exactly. Yeah, you know. So, um, yeah. it's. I think the Fed put and, and the central banks part of the story for sure. But but there's many factors that have contributed to the change environment. Yeah. Now, you brought along three articles, uh, and I will be completely frank and say I did not have time to read them because we're doing this uh, a day early. But I will also set the stage um, for you to talk about that the first article, which is by Edward Chancellor. Uh, which I don't think you were necessarily aware of, but actually we recorded an episode with Edward uh, yesterday, which will come out on Wednesday. Um, and so, um, so, I, I, so I'm not going to steal his thunder by making a lot of comments necessarily, but I'd love to hear uh, your view on that because I have to say, having sat in on the conversation he had with Kevin uh, yesterday, that was this is fascinating stuff. Uh, obviously, mm. he's a very well-known author. Uh, very well respected has come from the hedge fund industry um journalism etc cetera, etc cetera. so so i'd love to hear what your what the article was kind of about and what caught your attention in in edward's uh, article yeah it was actually an interview so it was an interview, oh, an interview in, in, in in the market publication i think it's a swiss publication um obviously i and, and i sent it on to you as an article so um i mean he touches on a lot of things that um i've i've kind of felt and believed over the last number of years uh he has you know he's written a book called i think it's the price of time so basically about interest rates because interest rates is the time value of money um and i suppose it's all about what happens in a world when when the price of time is mispriced and when obviously what happens when you keep interest rates too low for so long um you know his 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 overall conclusion is it's going to be an almost impossible task for for central bankers to normalize policy given that you've got these excesses building up for so, for so long and that's something that that I agree with and I think you know his philosophy and and I, I, I an insight I, and I agree with this as well is that in the last decade, central bankers were obsessed with fighting deflation, um, you know, and and they were inf- obsessed with hitting a a, a a a numerical inflation target. That you know, right. it used to be price stability was a good thing, you know, and you could say price stability is zero to two percent, but it doesn't really matter if it's one point one or one point nine. But central bankers got obsessed with hitting two percent and inflating you know doing more asset purchases to try and push up inflation um so there was this real concern about deflation you might say maybe for good reason you know there's a lot of debt in the system so if you get a debt deflationary spiral that was kind of the the, the bernanke his concern obviously he was a student of the great depression but um the flip side in 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 going gung-ho to ensure we don't get deflation and, and what edward chancellor talks about is the fact that you can have good deflation and bad deflation like good deflation through technology and 
you know, China, China coming into the global economy and excess supply growth is different from, from bad deflation, which you get like in, in, in insufficient demand in, in a depression. You know, you shouldn't be fighting uh, good deflation, but you would fight bad deflation. But the, the, the central bankers didn't differentiate between those two. And it's not that he's some guy with this wacky view. Like this was the this is probably the consensus view of the BIS for, for many years. And there's a guy, William White, he used to be the... Uh, uh, chief economist there he's written a lot about this and it was he wrote a very very interesting piece back in 2012 it was uh, called the unforeseen consequences of i can't remember of, of quantitative easing or asset purchases or, or something like that but very interesting about basically what you know you know economists might think in terms of you get you get interest rates down to zero and what does this mean you know in terms of aggregate demand and aggregate supply or you know keynesian economists look at the islm analysis but the, the the BIS's core view is always that well you're ignoring the whole financial system and what 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 behaviours are you motivating with keeping interest rates zero um, and 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 what 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 dislocations and you know we see it in in investor behaviour everybody's been pushed out to the risk spectrum you know we had to reach for yield into emerging markets we've had people going into you know obviously private equity VC um, crypto you know as well so so that's been the um, investment uh, um, legacy I think of some of these policies so um yeah he's he it's very interesting that, that that's kind of high level it won't <laughs> won't spill his his comments no, too much more but, but, his... but I, I think there's a lot there that that, that really resonated with me I completely agree. And I really hope everyone will uh, tune in uh, in a few days to listen to Edward's uh, conversation with Kevin. Uh, what I can reveal without revealing too much is that he, in fact, um, how should I put it? Um, he explains central bank policy in an old English uh, nursery rhyme that just tells you everything you need to know about this conversation. It is uh, definitely full of uh, both surprise and interesting uh, elements, without a doubt. But then let's move on to another article um, uh, from the, uh, I think he's maybe the chief economist, I'm not sure, a economist for sure, um, Sultan at um, Credit Suisse. Where do you want to go with that? Yeah, I mean, again, this is, I mean, this is all consistent with what we've been talking about, the, the changed macro environment. Um, and it's an interesting piece by Zoltan Pozar, who um, is a strategist. That's, his profile has been, I think he's always been a high-profile strategist, but particularly came to prominence recently talking about, you know, the dollarization um, or, uh, of, you know, or the weaponization of, 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 of the dollar and of commodities and the possible shift to a Bretton Woods three type arrangement but his latest piece is, is about war and interest rates um and i i, I just thought it was very interesting uh, and and thought-provoking he talks about how you know the consensus is that inflation is peaking and um central bank we've we've you know we've, we've reached peaked uh, central bank hawkishness as well and it's kind of all predicated on this conventional economic analysis of the economy is going to turn down and obviously that's going to weigh inflation and that will allow the Fed to pivot. And that's kind of fine in terms of a, a normal uh, an, a economic analysis. But that kind of ignores the geopolitical risks and the risks that you get further supply side disruptions, which I think is a very valid point. We don't know uh, what may come in the future, yet we've had the shock of, of Russia and Ukraine. But the market kind of prices that shock and then assumes, well, 
we, we just don't know what's the likelihood of another shock like that. So we kind of ignore that risk, I think. So I think the market is ignoring, in, in his perspective, that we may see an ongoing uh, supply side challenge and that we're into a, a war economy. Uh, one, he made a point in it, which I've been asking a lot of people, and he says he's been asking everybody and nobody has an answer for it. And that's like, where are all the workers gone? And I, I haven't found anybody who can explain where all the workers have gone because, you know, you go to the airport and there's no uh, baggage staff and, you know, the narrative is that the airlines cut staff and cut the wages so people didn't want to come back. But but where did it go? Because we're at, you know, record low unemployment levels everywhere. So you would think uh, um, that, 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 you know, they might show up in the unemployment numbers. But, you know, and at the same time, in, in the service sector, people can't get staff. And uh, yeah, so he, he didn't have an answer for that. And uh, so we've got a, you know, uh, a shortage of labor somehow. Um, uh, and that's a key part of the inflation story as well. So it's it's an interesting perspective that we've had this shift in the aggregate supply curve in economic terms to the left. Everybody's assuming that the aggregate demand curve is going to shift because we, we've got, you know, tighter policies. But what if we keep getting these uh, shifts and, and what if we're into an economic war and further tit-for-tat measures between um, the US, Russia and China? Uh, and I'm only very much summarizing uh, all of this at a high level. But but that's, you know, it's basically a cautionary note about there's a lot of complacency that that uh, that inflation is going to come down just because the central banks are telling us that'll be the case. Yeah, no, I think this is a very interesting point. And by the way, I have also been asking a lot of people uh, and just shaking my head saying, I don't understand where everybody has gone. Um, and of course, if you ask someone um, who's into uh, vaccine conspiracy, they will tell you where they've gone, but uh, let's not go that way. Um, but um, no, it is very interesting. Uh, as you rightly say, it doesn't matter which uh, sector you look at. Um, there are just too few people. Um, but but what I wanted to to say is that what I don't understand when 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 these experts sit and they try and predict um, the inflation is going to peak and and it's going to come down pretty quickly. I mean, we've seen now at least the effect of globalization, and globalization meant that we had for decades very very low inflation. Some would even say we had disinflation from time to time. So why is it hard to believe that if we're going now for deglobalization, we're onshoring or reshoring or local shoring, whatever they call it, we're bringing back our production uh, from Asia to much closer to home. So we're doing the opposite of what we did for all these years. Why is it so hard to believe that that is going to be inflationary and it's not going to be inflationary for three months or six months? Why not for 10 years or 15 years? That I don't understand. Nobody talks about that. Um, and I think that could be one of the surprises. And I actually personally believe, even though I have no insights, a pure gut feel, um, that we are in for a surprise in terms of how stopping inflation will be uh, over the next many, many years and how high it can go, as we talked about earlier. I mean, if the if the Bank of England expects 13%, I mean, that's pretty high inflation, uh, you know, so and 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 back to our first initial part of the conversation when we talked about rate hikes, where everybody's believing that it's just a matter of time now. It's only a matter of months before we get a pivot, right? And in some countries or in some areas of the world, uh, namely where I am located, they've only just started increasing rates back to zero. They're not so, you know. So let's not forget that during the seventies, late seventies, and the eighties, there were three main interest rate 
kind of hiking cycles, two of them were more than 10% and one at 6% from the low to the high. I mean, we've only gotten to what, two, two and a half percent. Um, so we could have, we could have a lot longer to go. So anyways, we don't have a lot longer to go in terms of our recording today. So we're going to jump to the next article that you, uh, that you brought along. And that's from our friends over at Bridgewater. What are what are they saying? That's right. I mean, it's good. It's good. Um, it picks up on what you're saying there, really, really. And it's kind of a follow up to we we talked about Bridgewater the last day. Uh, uh, their kind of balanced approach and um, within this uh, piece, they just highlight that stagflationary risks, according to their measure. Um, are, are at a hundred year high. It, it, they don't explicitly outline how to measure it, but in broad terms, they look at, you know, what what markets are discounting in terms of growth and inflation, and what they think is plausible in terms of growth and inflation, and they think the risk of inf- growth being weaker than expected and high and inflation being higher than expected is uh, the highest in a hundred years. I think what was interesting about the uh, Bridgewater piece um, that I liked. Um, because I is that they think that we might have a cycle where that the Fed does kind of pivot or pause, but then we have an, a, a de- another cycle of tightening, and that's where the real pain might come. And I think that's you know I think that's something that I, I tend to agree with myself because there's a lot of people, you know, you know Zoltan and his piece. He he seemed to be on the view. Well, no, Powell is going to embrace Volcker and keep going, and I'm not sure about that. I think the politics of this, as I said at the start, is going to be interesting. And I think it's you know it's it's one thing raising rates when the employment rate is three and a half percent, the economy is booming. Nobody can disagree about the, the need for higher rates at the moment, but. If, if you're in a recession and inflation is still high, you know, if US inflation is still above 4% and you're in a recession, Powell will be getting a huge amount of pushback um, politically at his press conference, you know, and so that, that's where I would question, you know, are we really moving into that type of uh, Volcker tightening cycle? And bear in mind that, you know, the US had, a, had cycles of inflation for about, you know, 15 years or so before the political... Um, you know, consensus was in favour of appointing somebody uh, like Powell, or sorry, like Volcker, to, 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 and, and he felt he had the, the mandate to go in action. So I'm not sure um, that, 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 that the Fed is going to, would, would do, would be so hawkish. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this with, with, with Bilal uh, um, uh, last week as well, and, uh, you know, his view is that they, they might have to go to 8%. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe, yeah, but maybe not all in the one go. It might be in in a, in, a, in a few different cycles, and that's what we had in the in the sixties and seventies. It's kind of stop go, you, you tighten, inflation comes down a bit, but not the whole way. Uh, then you ease, and um, you know that's what uh, Burns said at the end of the seventies. The reason it was so hard to tame inflation because the political support wasn't there to do it. So I think we're all assuming it's there, but I'm not sure. So yeah, I think there's a lot to that that idea of stop go and multiple tightening cycles yeah no i agree with that i want to throw in a fun um little point here um a lot of people kind of always talk about the um you know volker being the hero right and arthur burns being the the villain because yes. um you know but actually if you look at their actions they did pretty much the same thing they both and people may forget this they both raised rates by 10 percent I think one was 10 and a half, one was 10 and three quarters or 10 and a quarter, I can't remember. But actually they did the same thing. And I think that this tells, or this indicates to me 
that it's all about the timing. And maybe, I mean, you're probably more read up on this than I am. Uh, maybe as, as, as you refer now that he said, well, I didn't have the political backing and that could be definitely be a, a big factor. We, we, we know that. Um, but I also think it has something to do about, you know, just timing. Um, are you doing the right thing at the right time? And then it has the most uh, effect. Um, but if you do it maybe th four years earlier or three years earlier, it may have very little effect or a different effect. So, so, um, so I understand it's very hard to um, to do their job. Sometimes we we think, why are they doing such a poor job at it? Um, and 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 frankly, maybe some of the indicators they look at are a little bit too lacking for my taste in terms of uh, when they need to react. Because it, it was pretty clear if we could have if we could have seen all the inflation coming uh, like eighteen months ago when we talked about it on the podcast. I'm sure with all their PhDs, they they could have seen the same thing. Um, but in any event, uh, it is what it is. But yeah, no, it was a very um, insightful conversation you had uh, with Bilal, um, which we uh, published uh, last week. Um, so people should go and listen to that. He had some uh, non-consensus views, uh, like you said, Fed funds at eight that they may hit hit eight percent. Um, I don't think necessarily he believes either that it has to go in one straight line, but. But but again, I'm open to these numbers um, in in a little bit of a longer term perspective because I think that inflation uh, may stay much higher than people um, expect right now, and for much longer than people expect right now. And um, going back to Edward Chancellor's uh, conversation um, that's coming out next week, I think when people listen to that, and he's obviously kind of the oracle when it comes to financial history. I mean, he knows his his financial history. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and it's just really interesting to hear some of the things that he believes, some of the unintended consequences that he believes we're in for based on this ultra low interest rate environment we've had. Um, some of it, I have to say it was, um, new to me, um, the way he linked it together. Um, but it all made very, very much sense. Um, so yeah, anything else you want to mention from your conversation with Bilal or would you just want people to go and listen to? Yeah, no, I think, um, I think that was the, the, the standout kind of out of consensus view was certainly around, um, the, 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 the Fed. I mean, um, he was definitely, you know, from an asset allocation perspective, you know, negative on, on the kind of the outlook for bonds and equities in the near term and, and even beyond. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the interesting thing. Even um, you know, you, 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 if you look at all of those kind of people we've been talking about, Sultan, Edward Chancellor, Bilal, Bridgewater, they're all kind of saying, you know, okay, the consensus is wrong, um, which is that inflation is going to go up and come back down. But the, there's a, they all have a kind of a nuanced view, uh, slightly different, so it, like, a view as to how the actual path is going to be. So that, I think that's what makes it so interesting at the moment. It, you know, it, yes, maybe the markets are complacent, but what what's the alternative view look like? It, you know, is it boom bust? Is it stop go? Is it a straight line to eight percent? You know, there's lots of different uh, possibilities there. So. Um, um, that's that you know it comes back to that's why a, a rules-based approach is, is is beneficial i guess i think so i mean i and, and i've said this before i think we're more likely to see things like market conditions um like the 70s and the 80s and the 90s that were obviously um kind of referred to as the golden age for trend following relative to the 2000s and the 2010s in particular 
um, which were a little bit more challenging. Um, so, so yeah, that, that is definitely, uh, definitely, um, yeah, my consensus as well. Anyways, um, I think on this note, we're going to wrap up our conversation today, which we hope, of course, that you enjoyed. And if you did, why don't you head over to iTunes and to Spotify, leave a rating and review, because then it helps more people finding the podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Rich. So uh, please make sure you send in your questions. I know some have already come in, but please send some more questions for Rich and I to dive into next week. You can do so, of course, at info at toptradersonplug.com. And uh, we'll do our very best to get all of the questions answered. From Alan and me, thanks ever so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.